Praise be to God that we are together again in His Word. Uh, We're going to be looking again at Acts chapter 10. Epiphany, Pentecost for the Gentiles. This will be part two of this series. Please stand together as we read God's Word. As I read God's Word, you'll see in your sermon notes the verses of uh, focus are verses 9 through 23. Um, It's going to be... The sermon notes are wrong there. This is part two, Peter's vision, verses 9 through 23 from Acts chapter 10. And I'll read the whole chapter. It's important, I think, to hear this chapter all at once, even though we're going to be taking it in parts as we go through this uh, sermon series, this five-part series on Acts chapter 10. Please listen carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible word. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry, who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, 
was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So last week we looked at Cornelius' vision, and this week we'll take a closer look at Peter's vision from verses 9 through 23. In subsequent weeks we'll take a look at when Peter and Cornelius meet, 
That'll be uh, the third part. Part four, uh, Peter's sermon. We'll look closely at that. And then part five, the conversion of the first Gentiles, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and them being baptized with water. I'll read again the same quote from the commentary last week. Uh, this section is one of the most important units in Act in Acts. Here the gospel goes out directly to a Gentile and his household for the first time. Everything is coordinated by God, as was the case for Saul's conversion. The Spirit's coming upon the group independently of any action by Peter also confirms God's direction in what takes place. A point Peter makes very clear when the controversial inclusion of the Gentiles is discussed in chapter 11. In a sense, this scene is the book's turning point. As from here, the gospel will fan out in all directions to people across a vast array of geographical regions, something Paul's three missionary journeys will underscore. So this is a hinge point in the book of Acts. Prior to this, focused upon the Jews throughout all Judea and in Samaria and on the coastlands, but now exploding forth into the Gentile world. And this is the first experience that we know of, of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the Gentiles. That's why we call this the Pentecost to the Gentiles. And it is Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing Himself to all the world, not just to the Jews. So we'll look at the setting in verses 9 and 10. We'll look at Peter's vision, verses 11 through 13. We'll see that he refuses and is corrected three times as the vision ends. And then he's considering this vision as Cornelius' servants arrive. And he's still considering the vision, but the Holy Spirit speaks to him and bids him to go with these men. And then he obeys the Holy Spirit. And as usual, we'll look at it seeking to understand our day and our lives and how we can grow and be like Christ through what we learn from the text. You'll see there that the term epiphany comes from a Greek word which means appearance or manifestation. And I love it when providences occur like this. Of course, I would preach on this text and talk about Epiphany, whether it was Epiphany or not, but we are in the church calendar season of Epiphany, so it's a beautiful thing. In Western Christianity, the festival Epiphany, which is observed on the 6th of January, celebrates the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. The coming of the Magi to see the child Jesus or surrounding his birth is associated with the concept of Epiphany. So the Lord Jesus Christ is not just the king of the Jews. He is that. He's not just the deliverer of the Jews. He is that. Lord Jesus Christ is the king of the world. And he's come to deliver us all from the oppression of sin and the devil. We saw last week how the Lord had graciously worked in Cornelius to make him a God-fearing Gentile. He was working in him. He brought him to this point in his life so that he's now seeking the Lord in the path of Judaism, seeking the Most High God, yet still not converted to Judaism, not circumcised, not in the covenant. Cornelius has laid aside the false gods of Rome, and he is diligently, reverently, prayerfully leading his household in genuine piety and charity toward God and man. He's generous with his wealth, caring for the poor as he is seeking the Lord. Now also, as a Roman centurion, he is respected by the Gentiles. And as a diligent God-fearer, he is respected by the Jews as well. Into this situation of seeking the Lord, Cornelius, during prayer, 
receives prayer and fasting, receives a vision from heaven of an angel, encouraging him in his faith, telling him that his prayers have been heard, and commanding him to send for Peter, who is in Joppa. Cornelius has immediately obeyed at this point in the story, sending three trustworthy servants of his household, one a soldier. In this, we see God's all-controlling providence to bring his kingdom to the Gentiles. And in Cornelius, we have an example to encourage us all towards sincere piety and charity. We looked at that last week. So, moving into today's text, the setting, verses 9 and 10. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, so that's the setting. So what do we see here? Well, first of all, we see that Cornelius' servants are, at this time as he's praying, they're drawing near to Joppa. They're coming near to the city. It's the next day, the day after Cornelius has received his vision. So again, we see the Lord's providence at work in today's scene. These servants could not have known the Lord was opening Peter's mind and heart to receive them as they were drawing near, even as they are arriving at Joppa and beginning their search for Simon the Tanner's home by the sea. And Peter was surely unaware of their approach as well. I want us to note that we need to be aware the Lord is always working. We need to be happy when his plan intrudes upon ours. This is a a holy and happy interruption in Peter's day. Commentary says Peter knew nothing of their approach and they knew nothing of his praying. But he that knew both him and them was preparing things for the interview and facilitating the end of their negotiation. To all God's purposes, there is a time, a proper time, and he is pleased often to bring things to the minds of his ministers, which they had not thought of just then when they had occasion to use them. So what else is going on? They're coming near. Peter's praying. That's what he's doing. When is he doing it? It's around noon, which is the sixth hour. So it would have been during daylight hours. And where is on the housetop. So it appears as though the weather is clear. Could have been raining. But he's on the housetop. So it's likely clear weather. They're on the housetop by the sea. So I want us to hear note Uh, the once impetuous apostle appears to show a more steady Christ-likeness in how he is approaching prayer. It appears that Peter has set aside a time and a place to pray. For him, it's around noon, and it's on the housetop. Commentary says he went up on the house that he might pray alone by himself, for a quiet and lone place is a great help to prayer, which things Christ himself did not omit that the mind, being free from all things which may call it away, might be the more earnest and bent toward God. And the Jews had another manner of houses and buildings than we use, for they had walks upon the tops of their houses. The sixth hour was then noon, and it is not to be doubted, but that he got himself to prayer then according to his custom. For because we are drawn away with divers' businesses and there is no end of turmoiling, unless we bridle ourselves, it is good to have certain hours appointed for prayer. Not because we are tied to hours, but lest we be unmindful of prayer, which ought to be preferred before all cares and businesses. Calvin goes on. 
Finally, we must think the same thing of time which we think of place, to wit, that there are certain remedies whereby our infirmities is helped, which, if the apostles counted fit for them, how much must more the sluggish and slow use the same? So we see Peter demonstrating to us an important principle regarding prayer, setting aside a time and a place conducive to prayer. What is Peter's state there on the rooftop at noon as he goes to prayer? The scripture tells us that he is very hungry. He's desiring to eat. Had he been fasting? Perhaps. But at least we know he's very hungry. And that he's awaiting meal from the tanner's servant. So the meal is being prepared as he's there on the roof. So Luke gives us this detail that we may more fully appreciate Peter's state as he approaches the Lord in prayer there upon the rooftop by the sea in this great city of Caesarea. Hungry for food for his body, note, Peter is not distracted from his hunger for food for his soul. He has learned to prioritize food for his soul. Would anyone have thought it odd or irreverent for Peter to have instead assisted in food preparation? Of course not. Peter may have risked appearing unhelpful, in fact, as he ascended to the rooftop to pray as others worked to prepare food. This is reminiscent, it seems, of how Mary chose the one needful thing and sat at Jesus' feet. Also, consider the alluring smells of cooking. You know how good things smell when you're really hungry. Imagine the alluring smells of cooking that were likely in the air, wafting to the rooftop there as Peter was praying. Commentary says, Peter's hunger and the preparations in the house for a meal, whose appetizing odors he may have savored on the roof, make the food content of the vision to come all the more apropos and provocative at this time. During times of fasting, during times of physical hunger, those with eyes to see and minds to understand will allow that hunger to drive them to prayer. Their physical hunger will remind them and drive them to prayer. That's one of the greatest assistances of fasting from food is that that hunger, if we make the connection intentionally, can drive us to prayer. If fasting from food is not put to good use, it may not be profitable. So we can see in our mind's eye, I think, if you'll imagine it, Peter there, the impetuous apostle, calming himself as he seeks the Lord on a rooftop by the sea, hungry for food, for his body. He's not distracted, though. He turns his gaze from the Mediterranean Sea to the city and back, perhaps, feeling the sea breeze and the sun upon his face, hearing the sounds of the sea and the city. I don't know if they had seagulls, but that's what I'm hearing in my mind's ear right now. Enjoying the mixed aroma likely of sea air and cooking food, the sounds of the city, the sounds of the sea. As he closes his eyes and lifts his soul up before his Lord, seeking his face in prayer. So what is this vision that Peter sees? The text says, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, 
wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So first of all, let's look at this. Peter is in a trance. Trance, uh, you see the Greek word there related to the idea of ecstasy, is the throwing of the mind out of its normal state. Alienation of mind, whether such as makes a lunatic or that of a man who by some sudden emotion is transported, as it were, out of himself. So that in this rapt condition, although he is awake, his mind is drawn off from all surrounding objects and wholly fixed on things divine that he sees nothing but the forms and images lying within the trance and thinks that he perceives with his bodily eyes and ears realities that are being shown to him by God. So, it appears as though unlike Cornelius, whose retinas beheld the angel and whose eardrums heard the angel speak, Peter's taken into a trance where he sees and he hears the angel within his mind. Commentary says he fell into a trance or ecstasy, not of terror, but of contemplation, with which he was so entirely swallowed up as not only to be regardful, as, as not only not to be regardful, but not to be sensible of external things. He quite lost himself to this world, and so had his mind entirely free for converse with divine things, as Adam, in, in its innocency, when the deep sleep fell upon him. The more clear we get of the world, the more near we get to heaven. Whether Peter was now in the body or out of the body, he could not himself tell, much less can we. You see the scripture there where Paul speaks of these things and also an experience Abraham had. had. So there are multiple ways that God reveals himself to those of us on earth. Cornelius, with his retina and his eardrums, the angel coming into this realm and using the physics of this realm to communicate. But different for Peter, where he's brought, if you will, into heaven's realm and is made participant there of what is going on so what happens next is that he sees heaven open this reminded me of when heaven was closed in the garden and the veil was placed and that division was made between heaven and earth there lies a veil between heaven and earth that our natural senses cannot pierce since that time in this trance peter is somehow made able to perceive beyond the veil into heaven commentary says either visibly to his corporal eyes, as did Stephen, or rather mentally, more suitably to the rapture mentioned in the former verse. This idea of opened, which might signify that heaven, that was shut to the children of men by the first Adam, was now by Christ the second Adam, opened to all believers. And so we know that the veil was torn in the temple when Jesus died. And we know that through Christ, we have direct access to God in heaven through Christ. This idea is brought before our mind as well. Peter sees something as heaven is opened. Like a great sheet that's bound at the four corners, descending to him, let down before him to the earth from heaven. Descending. The sheet here spoken of bears an analogy to a table and a tablecloth amongst us. It's knit at the four corners, so it's gathered up that the animals that we see in verse 12 might not fall down and fall out of it. You can imagine the four corners 
You've done this before with a sheet, and you have the four corners, and you pick stuff up and carry it around. It's a giant sheet. And this Peter saw to come from heaven to show that the liberty of taking Cornelius and other Gentiles into the church did come from heaven only. So it's a heavenly vision meant to instruct him about what is coming, meant to show him the transition from the old covenant dispensation regarding Gentiles to the new covenant dispensation regarding Gentiles. So, loaded. This sheet doesn't just have a few. It's got animals of every kind. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. It should remind you of reading the first chapter of Genesis and creation. All kinds of things are in this giant sheet being brought down from heaven. And they're alive because he's told to kill and eat. So they're somehow mixed all together in this giant sheet moving around. Are they making their noises? Probably so. It's a, it's a vivid scene that God brings before Peter's mind's eye and ear, likely. This would have included unclean animals that Jews like Peter would never, never, never have eaten as a matter of religious piety and love for God. Leviticus 11, 46 and 47, in summary of these laws, says, This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So God is undoing this temporary application of eternal moral law. God is undoing the Old Testament temporary dispensation application of this eternal law, of eternal moral principle. And we'll get, we'll get into that more. Peter's commanded to rise, to kill and eat these animals, both the clean and the unclean. And it would have crashed into Peter's old covenant conscience as the most offensive concept. Peter did not yet understand the difference between eternal moral law and temporary applications of moral law. Here, Peter is being taught that the Old Testament dietary restrictions were only transient applications of God's holiness applied between Jews and Gentiles. If we go back a few verses, before verses 46 and 47 in Leviticus chapter 11, listen to what it says. This is the eternal moral principle. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. This is the eternal moral precept behind that transient requirement that was a part of the old covenant dispensation. And at this point in time, we're just talking about the law that you didn't eat unclean animals. We haven't moved into the idea yet, but we will, of breaking down all the restrictions that kept Jews and Gentiles from having social interactions with one another. But it's, they're connected. And God is preparing Peter to see this. So we see the Lord created Old Testament animal categories of unclean and clean to serve as constant reminders to them of his holiness and of his commandment to consecrate themselves 
in his ways and to not take up the ways of the surrounding unclean nations with their idolatry and their wickedness. So unclean animals represented unclean nations who were living in wicked ways and idolatry. And clean animals represented the Jews who were walking in God's righteousness and in his holiness if they obeyed him. So this was given to them as an everyday demonstration of the distinction between the holy and the unholy. So here, in Acts chapter 10, brothers and sisters, the Lord himself removes the dietary code as a binding commandment during the new covenant age. And connected to this, as we go on, the Lord removes the laws restricting Jews from interacting with Gentiles, eliminating the practical Old Testament hindrances to the dissemination of the gospel amongst the Gentiles. And connected to this, what it means is you did not have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And we'll see that at the end of this section where Peter says, let's baptize them. So the commentary says, the vision, whether a parable or a command about food, shows the arrival of a new era, and it's not just about diet. But it is about diet, but not just about diet. So this text is teaching us that the old covenant requirements regarding the dietary law is no longer binding upon us in the new covenant age. Nor are the old covenant restrictions between Jew and Gentile binding upon us in the new covenant age. And that was especially important then during this frontier time, this transition time of the kingdom of God going out to the world from the Jews. Peter doesn't know this yet. Peter doesn't understand this yet. Text says, Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. But God is cleansed. You must not call common. So there it is. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. So Peter's old covenant understanding, his old dispensation law that had been guiding his practice and his thinking, the connection between moral righteousness and the dietary laws was so tight inside of him that he argued with the vision from heaven three times. And three times he had to hear, what God has cleansed you, you must not call common. So here, this impetuous Peter speaks out three times in opposition to killing and eating unclean animals. Three times in opposition to this heavenly vision. Yet three times the voice from heaven gives the same command. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Furthermore, our memories can be unreliable. Repetition is very important in teaching. You can imagine the Jews would say to Peter, are you sure that's what you heard? I mean, really? That's a big deal, Peter. Are you sure? It's unlikely Peter will ever wonder if he misunderstood this commandment. Three times he saw this big giant sheet filled with everything flopping around inside there, making all their noises, probably. And he heard three times as he resisted, what God has cleansed you must not call common. The striking vision of all kinds of animals piled into a sheet and the thrice repeated command would leave a permanent mark his memory. 
Also, this is reminiscent, I don't think it's a coincidence, of Peter's thrice denial of Christ and Christ's thrice restoring Peter in John chapter 1. Remember? Feed my lambs. You know I love you, Lord. Tend my sheep. You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. I think a lot of us are like Peter. We need to hear things that don't make sense more than once, don't we? God's patient with us. Commentary says, the importance of the message requires three repetitions to convince Peter. As subsequent events will show, Peter does respond to the divine message as he journeys to Cornelius and welcomes the opportunity to present the gospel. Once the vision is successfully communicated, the sheet with the animals is removed back up into heaven. The fact that the vision is from heaven is stated at its beginning and at its end, to emphasize that to us. The verb for its ascending to heaven also matches the verb of Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Peter must learn to accept the impact of Christ's atonement upon the cosmos. No longer are unclean animals to be considered unclean. No longer are Gentiles to be considered unclean. The clean-unclean distinction, still real, now exists purely based upon one dividing feature. Faith in Christ and obedience to His eternal moral law. This is the dividing distinction between clean and unclean in the New Covenant age. And it takes wisdom to understand God's eternal moral law. It takes wisdom to learn right applications in each generation of God's eternal moral law. It takes wisdom to know what sections of Old Covenant dispensation were temporary applications of eternal moral law. And this is where many stumble. May God bless us with wisdom. Praise be to God for the creeds and the confessions, particularly of the Reformation, that give us such assistance in understanding these critical distinctions. Many have stumbled at this point. Note the Lord's patience also, brothers and sisters, with Peter to speak to him three times. Peter's resistance is based upon an effort towards faithfulness. I think... We want to see that Peter is trying to be faithful. He's just ignorant. He's ignorant of the new era and its new openness to Jew-Gentile relationships. And we need to humble ourselves and see that sometimes we, seeking to be faithful, may also be just ignorant. And we just need to be taught. We can learn from this. We can humble ourselves. Peter needs the new covenant understanding to sweep away the old covenant way with the Gentiles. He needs that to happen in his mind so he can understand a new expression of his faithfulness. And the sweeping away requires repetition. I think we've all heard before that often our life in sanctification is more unlearning than learning. More removing things from our beliefs that are false. And then it's so easy for truth to take root once the shadows and the darkness of false beliefs are removed. The putting off and the putting on. 
So what happens next? So Peter has experienced this. He has had his whole world shocked. Everything he's taught since he was a boy. And he's, the text says, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. So that's what's going on. What happens? Another providence. Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So he's been praying this whole time as they came near the city. He's gone through this vision as they're finding him. And then he's, the vision is done as they're arriving at the door. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. So this idea wondered. This Greek word means to be entirely at a loss. To be put in total, absolute befuddlement, perplexity, confusion. You can't understand what's happening. Everything is blown up in his mind. So he's totally at a loss for the meaning of the vision. He knows what he's seen. He knows what he's heard. He doesn't have any confusion about that, but he doesn't understand what it means yet. He doesn't know how to apply this in his life yet. (laughs) So while he's still swimming around or partially drowning in this befuddlement, the three servants of Cornelius arrive at at the tanner's house at that moment while he's trying to figure it out. Serving, if you will, is an immediate key to help Peter decipher his vision. Commentary says, by their errand, it will appear what was the meaning of the vision. Note, God knows what services are before us and therefore how to prepare us. And we then better know the meaning of what he has taught us when we find what occasion we have to make use of it. So often the Lord's teaching us things that we don't really know why we're learning it. And then boom, there it is. It's like those crazy games you can play where you pick up a little jewel and put it in your pocket and you don't know why, but if you didn't pick it up later, you don't get any further. So pay attention to what you're learning from God's Word as you go because those things will often be brought to bear as you minister, as you evangelize. So there was a great hindrance in Peter's life to being able to receive these three men and God removed it by this vision. We need to have our hindrances removed as well and we can trust that God will do that. Peter, we know, is devoted to Christ Devoted to the kingdom. What's he doing? Is he at Joppa for a vacation? No, you know how he got there. He got there because he was ministering, right? He had gone from Lydda to Joppa and he'd been ministering through this whole region. So Peter's out doing the will of God, taking the kingdom to where God told him to. And he's doing it. So if we have that same heart, we can expect God will remove hindrances in our lives as well. But I get ahead of myself. What happens next? Peter continues to consider the vision. He's still not sure the key of these three men arriving hasn't fully persuaded him what the vision means yet. And so God, in his kindness, talks to him and tells him what to do. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So it's as if the arrival of the three men, it seems like he's aware that they've arrived and he's not so fully perplexed anymore. And so he's more just kind of thinking about it now. And then the spirit confirms that by telling him, go with these men. With the three servants waiting below, he's continuing to deliberate, to ponder the vision. He's still seeking its meaning. And then the Holy Spirit answers Peter's what appears to be a holy meditation before the Lord, very clearly showing him 
the immediate application of the vision. And here it is. Number one, go with the three servants of Cornelius. Go with them. Number two, doubting nothing. And we're going to look at that more closely because it has deeper meaning than what we get out of the New King James there. And number three, the Lord has sent these men to Peter. Those are the three things that the Holy Spirit tells him. So first of all, about doubting nothing. This word doubting means discerning. That is to separate, to make a distinction, to discriminate. And it goes back to the old covenant thinking that he would have had between clean and unclean. That would have been in his mind. Would have kept him from going with them. Commentary says, the expression is usually translated as without hesitation in the sense of without entertaining doubts. While this somewhat trivial meaning is not impossible, it is not likely in the context of the vision. As Peter has just been directed by the heavenly voice three times not to treat pure animals differently from impure animals, but slaughter and eat animals that only profane Gentiles eat, he is now directed by the Spirit not to make a distinction that he would normally make between pure Jews and morally impure and profane Gentiles. The distinction between the sacred and the profane, between the impure and the pure, was one of the fundamental tasks of the priests and thus of Israel. And the Spirit helps Peter make the interpretive move from the animals in the vision to the people that he is to visit. That is, the Gentiles. The Lord has sent these men to Peter. They've come to him from the Lord. So not only has he been told to set aside this distinction, but also he's told, look, I have sent these men to you, and you are to go with them. Just like the vision was brought down from heaven to Peter's mind's eye three times by the Lord, so now these three men arrive at Peter's door before his very eyes. What happens next? Well, Peter obeys the Spirit. He has been brought to a new understanding of the current reality in which he lives. And he makes the change that fast. I don't even think they've sat down to eat yet. Maybe they have, but I don't think so. Here's what the text says. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So Peter now, he, he knows the men are from the Lord, and he knows that he must go with them, but he doesn't yet know why they're seeking him to go with them. He doesn't know the reason and so his question is reasonable. Don't take it as an expression of doubt or any kind of resistance to the Lord. So it's a reasonable question. He's going to go. He just wants to understand more. Next, we see here Luke again commends the Gentile Cornelius, who was, we're told, divinely instructed by a holy angel. And this is important as we imagine this interaction between Peter and, and the servants of Cornelius. Because in this setting, it shows how God is cleansing a common Gentile. And so Peter should not call Cornelius or his household unclean. Peter, <clears throat> Peter would surely be remembering the Spirit's words. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. So this description of Cornelius is in this category of what God has cleansed. 
And he is to receive this and to move into this as an evangelist. Now, look at this as well. Demonstrating that he is no longer making old covenant distinctions between Jew and Gentile, Peter invites the men in and lodges them, which surely would have meant eating with them. So you can imagine as they're having this exchange, probably the smells of that meal are there in their midst. You've had people arrive at mealtime, right? I know you have. And you pull out extra chairs and extra seats and extra plates, and you say, come on in and join us. And that's what they did. And the Gentile-Jew distinction did not keep them from doing doing that and kept them overnight as well. Probably would have fed them more than once. Eaten together with them, table fellowship with them more than one time. Commentary says Peter hosts them overnight before the trip back the next day. Already the idea of fellowship is implied. This would not be viewed as containing as much risk of uncleanness as a Jew going into a Gentile home, but it is still a significant step. It probably would be regarded as risking potential exposure to uncleanness by the more scrupulous observers of the law. And this has a lot to say to us about how we approach hospitality. So Peter fully obeys the Lord and goes with the men back to Caesarea to preach the gospel of the kingdom to Cornelius. and Some of the brothers from Joppa go with him. What great joy. Think about this, what Peter is blessed to experience. The Lord has done such great things to arrange for Peter this priceless opportunity to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to these hungry Hungry souls who are craving the truth of the gospel. May it be our prayer, O Lord, we beseech Thee, bless us with this same wonderful gift in our lives today. Do you long for this? So, praise God for His plan to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of Lords, reigning over the cosmos. Some questions to consider about this text applied to our lives. First of all, regarding prayer. Do you have an established pattern of prayer? A place and a time for you, a place and a time for you to pray to God, to seek His face. What about for your family? Does your family have a place and a time for you to pray together as a family. I think we see this pattern not just in the life of Cornelius, not just in the life of Peter, we see it in the life of Christ and many others throughout Scripture. Have you taken the time to consider how to prioritize spiritual hunger in your life? Next, do you allow physical hunger to control your behavior? Or does spiritual hunger for Christ guide your priorities? So do you set your schedule around physical mealtimes? Or do you set your life schedule around spiritual mealtimes? Certainly not intended to create any sort of dualism. As if we're not also spiritually feasting when we eat together. I think you see, however, that prayer is important. And that scheduling our lives around our relationship with God regarding prayer is prioritizing properly. Next. What might you be considering common 
that God has cleansed? What might you be considering common that God has cleansed? Another way of thinking it is, what unnecessary barriers do you allow into your life regarding evangelism? To whom you will share the gospel? Or for hospitality, whom you will invite into your home? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 that he would become all things to all men, but never becoming, never giving way to lawless living. So, to what extent are you limiting your evangelistic efforts, your hospitality efforts, because of the same kind of mistaken thinking that Peter had? And in this way, do you see ways perhaps that you might be resisting God's commands to evangelize and to practice hospitality? And like Peter, perhaps in faithfulness, in thoughts of being faithful. So those things are worth examining and considering before the Lord. Next, do you long for God to open Cornelius' doors for you to walk into? Do you long for this in your life? Do you long for this for our church to experience this? Who knows, perhaps we might look back on this sermon and think, That was the day we changed. That was the day we gave ourselves to this longing for evangelism and hospitality. And we cried out to God for this craving and that he would meet this craving in our lives. And that we, like Peter, would then think and go to the places where we might have this opportunity for evangelism. And that we might think through opportunities for hospitality. And to go and to be proactive like Peter, expecting these doors to come flying open. Is he still the same king? Does he still have the same power over human hearts? Does he value the expansion of his kingdom any less today than he did then? Any, right, no. (laughs) No. He's the same Lord. He loves his kingdom and his church as much today as ever. He's devoted to the destruction of his enemies today as much as ever. He's devoted to bringing in his elect today just as much as ever. He's devoted to helping his beloved become those evangelists, those demonstrators of hospitality as much today as ever. He is not the problem. It is our hearts, brothers and sisters. We are the problem. So are we praying for this? Do you long for evangelistic open doors or do you dread the idea of the Lord bringing someone into your path saying, please share the gospel with me? Pray for your heart to be changed towards evangelism. Pray for your heart to be changed towards hospitality. And pray for opportunities to share the gospel and to practice hospitality, brothers and sisters. Next. Do you trust that God will help you understand his word and his providence in due time and bring it to practice in your life? And can you see how this will fuel your hunger and your joy in studying God's word and being in his word? The reality that as he teaches you, he's preparing you to serve him. He's preparing you for good works that he's designed in advance, created in advance for you to walk into. Think of these things. Next. Do you respond 
to how do you respond to evangelistic interruption opportunities? So when you get interrupted and you realize the interruption is someone who's seeking truth, but you didn't schedule that in your day and you've got things on the back end and you don't know how to handle this moment, what do you do? How does your heart respond to this moment? So we want to be diligent and faithful with our time, but we know that the Lord is the one who has made the schedule from eternity past. And the plan that we have ourselves for that day very well may not be the steps he directs us into for that day. Next. Are you able to be hospitable towards those who are way different than you? Evangelism towards those who are way different than you. Thinking that because of what they look like on the outside, they're not going to be interested in the gospel. Forgetting what you looked like on the outside when God was working in you. Finally, as you approach evangelism, hospitality, do you walk in the awareness of epiphany? Christ is not a provincial ruler who saved a certain region and a certain people. That he is the second Adam who has come to restore humanity to all that was lost at the fall. And that every human soul has the same need and you have been given by God's grace the solution to your eternal problem by the faith that he has given to you and that you can share the words of life and that every other human soul has the same problem. And you have the words of life to present to them in Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. He is the second Adam. He is bringing all of his elect from every tribe and tongue and nation into his kingdom. Breaking down distinctions between Jew and Gentile, young and old, boy and girl, black and white, American and Russian, Republican and Democrat. I'm sure you've thought of other categories. The one distinction that matters is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to His commandments. And we have been given the words of life and brought into His kingdom. And we have the treasure of eternity to share with those that we meet. And may God bless us to be like Peter. And to, to learn when we need to learn, but be devoted to Christ and his kingdom, to evangelism, to hospitality, all the days of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we rejoice that you in your kindness have saved Gentiles like us, brought us into your eternal kingdom of light and life, and that you've given us the words of life, and that you've granted to us beating hearts and lungs filled with air and minds that think and mouths that can speak and that you've given us the opportunity while we still live to participate in the bringing in of your elect. To participate in the destruction of the kingdom of darkness. Oh, how we, Lord, we confess that we get so distracted from this great and glorious life that you've given to us. Bless us, we pray, to be brought up into heaven to be brought up into heaven's kingdom, to be brought up into heaven's purpose for our lives as we walk in this earth. In Jesus' name.
Amen.